Good morning. Admit it. Your life has not worked out according to your plan. Last month didn't work out according to your plan. Today may not work out according to your plan. Do you know why this is true? Because you aren't the author of your story. Life can be a mystery, and I may not have a clue what's around the corner, let alone where I'll be or what I'll be doing years from now. But even though we don't know these things, and we might get some surprises all along the way, we don't need to panic. Yes, our lives are out of our control, but that doesn't mean they are out of control. I'm a planner. Anybody who gets to know me learns this about me. I want to know that things are in control. I've learned of myself that when something is out of control, the anxiety starts to brew and build inside of me. I'm not a guy that's going to say, hey, let's go on a road trip for five or six days. And if I ask, where are we going? And someone says, we don't know. We're just going to get in the car and drive. Adam's not getting in that car. (laughs) That's just not going to happen. So I plan. And then I work the plan. And I, I know this can come across as controlling. And in some ways, maybe it is a little bit. But things don't have to go according to my plan for me. They just need to go according to some plan that somebody has a plan for. It doesn't have to be me in control. It just needs to be somebody with some sort of plan. And at least for me, that begins to dispel the anxiety that I talked about that starts to well up in me. I may not like the plan. I may not agree with the plan. But the anxiety stops becoming a factor, kind of. Um, So again, something might be out of my control, but that doesn't mean it's out of control. Another thing about me is I'm a reader, although I don't read as much now as I used to. My favorite author outside of God who wrote the Bible. My favorite author is J.R.R. Tolkien, and he has so many wonderful works, but is most well-known for an epic saga in the books The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He's a tremendous author, a literary genius, I would even say an actual genius, but this message really isn't about Tolkien. I hope you're familiar with some of the stories he's most known for, though, Uh, and and I'm going to ask you something, and I'll say, spoiler alert here, However, if you don't know and aren't that familiar with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings saga, you are decades behind. I mean, he wrote The Hobbit in 1937, and the books, the other ones were written along after that, and they've also been made into two major motion picture trilogies. So yes, that's six movies. So I'm okay with a little bit of a spoiler alert, but here's my question to ponder. In Tolkien's epic saga of The One Ring, who destroyed the ring? Now, you might be thinking it was this person or it was that character. But in the grand scheme of things, the real answer is Tolkien. Tolkien's the author. He wrote the story. It's his work. It's his world. And nothing happens in it without him. Tolkien destroyed the ring. He didn't have to. He could have written it any way he wanted. In the world we live in, I've learned that Something might be out of my control, but that doesn't mean it's out of control. Pastor and author Paul Tripp, he's one of my favorite people to read lately. Uh, He's got a couple of really good devotionals, but he writes this in one of his devotionals. Our lives are under the careful administration of the one who had the wisdom and power to be the great author of it all. Since God is the author of every detail of your story, since he writes into your story every situation, location, and relationship, 
then he knows exactly what you're facing and precisely what grace you need to face it in the way he has planned. You could say it this way. His sovereign control is the guarantee that you will have everything that he has promised you. His sovereign control means he knows what you need because he has planned for you everything that you're now facing. Because he rules over all things at all times, he can guarantee that you and I will have what he has promised us. It's an amazing thought. And it kind of just brings some perspective. And this encouraged me again recently. Because I think as I was preparing for this message, I realized God shouldn't be seen as far off and distant as a lot of people see him. He's not separate from our daily Christian life. He's intimately involved. And that's an amazing thing in and of itself. And today, it's my hope we can gain a bit of a, a little bit of a new perspective maybe about how God is connected to us and how he gives us all we need. Now, I know I've used this illustration before in a sermon, but I found myself coming back to it again recently in preparing for this message. So I'm going to mention it again and maybe with a little bit more detail, but can you remember being little and learning how to float? Talking about in water, right? Most of us can. If you think back for a second and picture that scene in your mind or remember that scene, uh, maybe you're in a pool or maybe it, it's a lake or, or a river, depending on where you were or, or whatever. But you're out there with somebody and, and they're trying to teach you how to float because you want to learn. And so you've seen them do it. You want to do it. You get in the water. You kind of flop yourself up to the surface and you try. And what happens? You sink right? It's just, right? You just sink. It just doesn't work, right? No problem. It just takes a few tries. You're learning something new. And you try it again. And again, you sink. And still no problem because, again, it probably just takes practice, right? But again and again, you try to float. And again and again, you sink, at least at the beginning. It seems like the harder you try, the faster you sink, right? And you just can't seem to get it because it seems impossible. Do you ever hear people talk about how hard it is to live the Christian life? Have you ever tried to live the Christian life? It's kind of like trying to float, I think. I was thinking about this. So many times it seems like the harder we try, the harder we sink, the harder we fail. The Christian life seems impossible. There are some that say it is impossible to live the Christian life. And so today we're going to look at a verse from one of Peter's letters that deals with this thing I've been calling the Christian life. But before we turn there, I want to take a moment and remember this man called Peter. So if you want to put a bookmark or turn in your Bible, our passage is going to be from 2 Peter chapter 1. But I want to remember this man Peter for just a moment. Remember who he was. He was one of Jesus' chosen disciples. He was one of the elite, maybe you could say, because when the disciples are mentioned, there's usually a reference to either the 12 or to a group of three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was the one who Jesus called the rock. Peter walked on water. We remember the story. Eventually he sank, right? But before he sank, he walked on water. Peter became the leader of the apostles. But I can remember some other stories about Peter too. Peter pushed Jesus to wash his whole body when Jesus was just going to wash his feet. In the Garden of Eden, Peter drew that sword and swung it and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Remember, Peter was also the person to whom Jesus once said, get behind me, Satan. And it was Peter who, when he was asked by a servant girl around a fire if he knew Jesus, 
denied even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. Remember all this? Peter tried hard sometimes, but sometimes it seems like he just didn't get it. (laughs) But it's the same Peter who penned some amazing words, of course, all, all of his words, uh, through God and the Holy Spirit, but in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it reads this. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Packed into this little verse, I think, is a key to a fuller understanding of this thing we call the Christian life, at least according to Peter. But for our better understanding, it's probably a good idea to read it a little bit in context. And so what I want to do is read the first eight verses here of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And for this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 8. And this is God's word for us. And here we see a statement that's made by Peter. In verse 3 that I referenced, it says that His divine power has given us everything that we need. Jesus' power holds with it this idea of being, I gave myself a little tongue twister that I kept getting mixed up on, of being both able and capable. You see, the power to grow doesn't come from within us, but it comes from God. And this power, it's described as divine something belonging to God alone, showing us the reason that it is both able and capable. But something that is able and capable must have a task that it is both able and capable of accomplishing, right? It's able and capable of giving us everything we need. That's what Peter says. Everything we need for what, you might ask. That's what we're going to talk about. First of all, for life. The first half of the gospel message is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took the worst thing that we could do to him and he turned it around and he redeemed us with it. And that's amazing, but it doesn't end there because there's another part of the gospel. And the other part is that Jesus rose again on the third day to give us life. And that life, I'm a huge believer in the fact that it begins here and now, not later when we get to heaven. Jesus himself says, I have come that they may have life in John chapter 10, verse 10. And Peter goes on in this passage to extend this reign of how Jesus' power gives us everything we need. It not only gives us everything we need for life, but he describes this life as godly. 
This power also gives us everything we need for godliness. If it's the power of Jesus alone that gives us everything we need for our Christian life, then it's only because of that power of Jesus alone that we can be described as godly. Our godliness is not dependent on us trying to live out this life. It's dependent on Jesus living life through us. So that's a statement that Peter makes. But there's also a progression that's revealed in, this words, in these words from Peter. And we see it in verses 5 through 7. And I want to walk through it kind of quickly, but I at least want to note it and walk through this, this progression. It begins in verse 5 with faith. Faith, that initial acceptance of the love of God into our lives. Then we add to our faith goodness. The Christian must put into practice this salvation which God works in us. We start putting it into practice. Next comes knowledge. Christianity is not just a matter of practical faith and personal goodness. There is an intellectual element within us, and that has a place also. After knowledge comes self-control. And this means that we're supposed to control the passions in our lives instead of being controlled by them. True knowledge doesn't release us from self-control. It rather leads to self-control. Next comes perseverance, he says. Perseverance springs from developing a habit of self-control. I love this. One commentator noted this. He said, Christianity, it's like the steadfastness of a shining star rather than the passing brilliance of a meteor. It's the steadfastness of a shining star rather than the passing brilliance of a meteor. There's another author, Eugene Peterson, if you know the name. He has a book that talks about this. I just remember this now, and it's called, the title is, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's that idea of perseverance. It's not a stoic acceptance of everything that comes, but it springs from the faith, the promises of God, the knowledge of Christ, experiencing this divine power working in us. After perseverance, godliness is next in this progression Peter talks about. True knowledge of God manifests itself as a reverence to him, but also a respect toward mankind. This is really a practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. It's being aware that God is, is everywhere. He's in me. He's in that other person made in his image. And then comes mutual affection, he says, or some translations said brotherly kindness. Because kindness for Christian brothers and sisters, it's a distinguishing mark of true discipleship. Jesus said they'll know we're Christians by our love. And at the end of this progression, Peter brings it right around to that, to love. The end of this progression in discipleship is love. All of this builds towards love. That's the Christian life that Peter's talking about and describing. And he says it's lived by Jesus himself in and through us, his church. It is his divine power, Peter says, that has given us everything we need for a godly life. Now let's talk about maybe why this is important. Through the years, I've known many people who've gone through some really hard things in life, and you probably have also. Even friends in ministry. And I was thinking about a bunch of these things this last week. And when life has crept up around us and surrounded us, and we cry out to God, whatever it is we cry out to God, and then it keeps going, and life has us cornered, and we feel the pressures pounding us again and again, and we might actually even scream out to God 
God, I can't do this. I was thinking back over some of the things some friends of mine over the years have been through. I jotted some of them down. When your father passes away suddenly or your wife loses the twins she's carrying. When your young child gets diagnosed with an uncurable cancer or your teenager is killed in a tragic accident. When your mentor, that spiritual leader you look to, commits adultery. When that amazing church member, a pillar of your church and of your community, is arrested for child abuse. You might very well have a moment when you turn eyeball to eyeball with God and you let him have it. And you finally say, God, I can't do this anymore. I want you to understand that God's proper response to you or anyone in that moment is this. You're right. You can't. Because that's my job. It's me that lives in you for everything you need for a godly life. We will never be able to live the Christian life on our own. The answer is not in ourselves. It is only found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's time we come to grips, I think, with God's words to us and be reminded of this. You can't do it, he says. The Christian life is my job. Trust me to do it. Trust in my power, which has given you everything that you need. And like me, you might be thinking, yeah, that's the idea. I I believe that. But I want to ask you today, do you really? And if you do, how might your life be different? Maybe a little different, maybe a lot different. How would this idea change your life? How would you look at what you call your failures? Would you see them like he does? Would you be able to trust in his forgiveness and then pass it along and forgive someone else? Would you be able to trust him to live this Christian life and stop trying to carry all the burdens yourself? Picture this scene. You're driving your pickup truck down a road and you see, we don't see this a lot anymore, but you see a hitchhiker carrying a giant heavy load. You pull over and you offer them a ride, which he gladly accepts, but he won't get in the front cab with you He says, I'm just going to get in the back, okay? So a little way down the road, you look in your rearview mirror, and you see that he's hunched over in the bed of the truck, still carrying the heavy load over his shoulder on his back. And you ask him, why don't you put the pack down in the bed of the truck? That's okay. He says, I don't want to bother you that much. Just get me where I'm going, and I'll be fine. It's ridiculous, right? (laughs) At least we would think that's ridiculous. But this is the attitude of a lot of us as Christians at different times. We happily board God's salvation wagon and expect Him to get us to heaven, but we try to keep shouldering the effort along the way ourselves. What we should do is trust in His divine power because His Word tells us it's given us everything that we need. In other words, the Christian life, it's all up to Jesus. Not only is it His responsibility for getting us into heaven, it's also His responsibility for carrying us through this life here on earth, right here, right now. Continuous dependence on Jesus. That's the message of a life changed by the gospel. But somehow, we let ourselves be convinced that we're supposed to live our lives for Jesus instead of allowing Jesus to live through us. And I think we need to understand the difference there. 
There's a huge difference. I wouldn't even call it a subtle difference. There's a huge difference between trying to live our lives for Jesus and Jesus living his life through us. Jesus is not so powerless that he needs our help. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I forget that sometimes, right? John 14, verse 6. Jesus is not a life. He doesn't give a type of life. He doesn't set the curve for a certain kind of lifestyle. And he didn't just leave you with some principles to live by. He says, I am the life. Jesus is your life. I, I noted a pa- one passage here, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I think it's a good definition, scripturally, of eternal life. God's definition of eternal life, 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus Christ is the eternal life you signed up for. Eternal life is a person. Eternal life is not an extension of something. It's not an it. It's not a phenomenon. It's not a set of values. And this person, Jesus Christ, is to live life and express it through you and through me. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. I love this thought from another author. And he writes this. It's presumptuous of any person to think he can emulate the life of Christ. God doesn't want to help you live on earth any more than he wanted to help you get saved. He did it all for you then. He wants to do it all for you now. This way God, not you, gets the glory. Salvation is all of God, nothing of man. Folks, the Christian life is to be experienced in exactly the same way it began. He wants to do it all for you and through you. God wishes Christians knew that they were never intended to live the Christian life. He wishes we knew that Jesus Christ is to live the Christian life through his body, the church. It's an amazing thought. Do you remember learning to float? Remember that feeling that it was impossible? The more you try, the faster you sink. See, I said I was going to use this illustration and come back to it again. Remember when you finally asked that person, what are you doing out there? I do. I remember that as a kid. And the response I got was, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just in in the water, right? There's really no way to explain it, I guess. And then you finally get it and you learn the key to floating. Your job is merely, merely to surrender yourself to the water. And it becomes the water's responsibility to hold you up. We can't live this Christian life. Only Jesus can. But he chooses to do so in us and through us as members of his family and his church. We do need to live out our life following him as he leads us through that progression, through faith to goodness, from goodness to knowledge, through knowledge to self-control, 
out of self-control into perseverance, through perseverance to godliness, from godliness to mutual affection, and from mutual affection to love. We do need to follow him, but we need to let him lead and let him live through us. This is how we get our roots down deep into Jesus, enough to let him be living through us every day. I mentioned my favorite author is Tolkien. One of the more well-known quotes from Tolkien's works is this. Maybe you've seen it or heard it. Not all those who wander are lost. You can find it on posters and shirts and mugs and all kinds of stuff, right? But that's actually only one line from a larger poem in Tolkien's work, The Fellowship of the Ring. And the full stanza of the four lines that that line comes out of reads as this. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. I like that last line. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. I hope your roots in Jesus continue to grow deep and wide. And I've said so many times over the years, I don't know how people get through certain things in life without Jesus Christ. I honestly don't. But since God is the author and since God writes your story, He knows what you're facing. And He knows exactly what you need to live His way. And just like it's the water's job to hold us up, it's Jesus' job, if you want to call it that, to live the Christian life by His divine power, at least according to this passage that Peter's talking about. And Peter's making this point that the one who calls us also enables us. He may not give us everything that we like, but I think he does give us everything that we need. And that's his responsibility. You might be asking, what's my job? What's my responsibility? And I would say, if I want to oversimplify it, I would say it this way. Your responsibility? Learn to float. <laughs> Learn to surrender yourself to Jesus with each new day, with each new thing. It's one of these things that if you, if you get to know me, you'll hear me say this often too. The idea is simple, but I know that simple does not mean easy. <laughs> Those are two separate things. It's a simple idea, even though it's not easy. But we need to surrender ourselves to Jesus, allow him to deepen us and strengthen us and set our roots more and more as we grow in him. And that, honestly, it's going to look different for each one of us. It's going to look different for you and for you and for you than it is even for me. And so I can't do it for you, but that's your homework. Each day, every day. And eh, we don't like homework, I know. <laughs> but today I want us to walk out of here and away from here and always remember this concept that Peter is talking about. That Jesus Christ, in his divine power, has given us all that we need. Amen? Amen.